morning. You watching downstairs, uh, good morning to you down in F3. And uh, again, happy Father's Day to you fathers. Uh, for you grandfathers, fathers, thank you for your, your love and your sacrifice to your families. Um, now, it's not lost on me. We, we've been studying the book of Acts here. And it's not lost on me that the first convert in Europe was a woman who impacted her whole household. We studied it last week in Acts chapter 16. Her name was Lydia. And uh, she came to Christ, and then um, it impacted her whole household. But right after that, there was a man who got uh, saved, came to Christ, and faith in Christ. It was that Roman jailer, if you'll recall. This tough old guy who <clears throat> was probably a retired Roman soldier, because a lot of them retired there in Rome and got civic jobs. And, and uh, I don't know, you know I'm, this is conjecture, but they might have picked out the ugliest and the meanest and the worst of the bunch and made him a jailer, because I think he'd have to be that. Uh, and he was, uh, had to be a rough, tough old bird, this Roman jailer. But he came to faith in Christ, and man, what a transformation took place in that guy's life. So we read in, in, uh, in um, Acts chapter 16, it says that he, he took them after, the, after the, the earthquake and all that, and, and, and he asked, how must I be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was saved. It says, he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately was baptized, he and his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now, can you imagine? Now, I don't know if there were little kids in that household or teens or, or, or maybe young adults. I don't know. But can you imagine what they must have thought of their dad <laughs> when he got, came back? I mean, look what he, it says he did. He takes these guys, these prisoners, and he washes their wounds. He's baptized. Um, he feeds them. He brings them into his house, and he rejoices greatly, having believed in God. I mean, it's like, what happened to dad? And, you know, never underestimate the power of a dad in a home who loves Jesus and has been transformed by the power of God's grace. And how that impacted this home. Uh, wow, what, what, what an incredible uh, impact, not only to that home, but to that whole city. Because this is the beginning of the church in Philippi. Lydia and that slave girl who was the demoniac who was set free and, and now this Roman jailer and his family and the church in Philippi is started. And Paul, it says, leaves Luke in Philippi and uh, they continue their, their journey. And it's a journey about 100 miles to go to the next major town from Philippi to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a town of about, they say, 200,000 people. It was the, the district capital of that region, of that province of Macedonia. Major, major city. And, uh, and then they would travel about another 45 miles down to the next little town of Berea. And so take your Bibles with me because we're going to follow this journey of Paul in the tale of two cities in Thessalonica and Berea. And by the way, just for those of you who enjoy the thoughts of, uh, of Roman history, um, by this time, that, that first century time, you realize that the, the Romans had built roads that encompassed about 200,000 miles. Think of that, 200,000 miles of Roman roads had been built. 
and 50,000 miles were um, paved. Uh, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, it was, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. At the right time in human history, uh, the, the, the church is started. Jesus Christ comes into the world and all this begins. And part of, I think, the right time is that the Romans had built all these roads and the ability to travel on these super highways, and there, you can still see them. This is a, a, an actual picture of a Roman road. Um, that is how the spread of the gospel continued. And Paul takes what was called the Ignatian Way, a major highway from Philippi down to Thessalonica, that 100-mile trip, and he arrives at, um, at Silas and Timothy with him at this major capital city of Thessalonica. Um, so let's pick up the story. It's um, chapter 17, verse 1. And I'm reading here from the New American Standard Version. It says, Now when they had traveled through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now Philippi, if you recall, didn't have a synagogue. It takes 10 men to have a synagogue, and there weren't that many Jews in Philippi, but there were certainly in this town of 200,000 people. And so Paul, uh, as was his custom, uh, found that synagogue. And verse 2 says, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Messiah, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. And that could mean these were, um, these were probably proselytes to Judaism, or they were at least God-fearers. They were worshipers of, uh, of, of Jehovah God of the Old Testament. They had been brought into that whole mindset. And, and their wives, it could be, or, or other leading women. Uh, but a few of the Jews and a large number of the Greeks uh, trusted Christ. Verse 5 says, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. Now, we don't know who Jason was, but he was a believer, obviously, and that's, he was probably the host to Paul and Silas and Timothy. Well, verse 6 says, when they did not find Paul and Silas and Timothy, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And by the way, apparently, this uh, the way the the these Greek cities were organized like Thessalonica. There would be, they were governed by six, five or six um, magistrates. These were the key leaders of the city. And so Paul and Silas are brought before these five or six key leaders, the magistrates, and um, who heard these things. And verse 9 says, well, Paul and Silas weren't drugged before them because they, had already, they weren't there. It was Jason and his household. And it says in verse 9, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Some type of a bond, some type of a, um, Jason had to put up money, basically. And the, these magistrates said, if there's any more trouble, 
we're keeping the money and you know so this was an attempt at guaranteeing that there wouldn't be any more trouble well that's the first city Thessalonica now um, I want to, want to go back and, and share a little bit about what was Paul's custom, it says in verse 2. What, it gives us a little bit of an insight what was the typical thing that Paul did when he would go to a city, find the synagogue, and um, what, what did he do there? And again, back to verse 2 and 3. It says, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and and demonstrating or giving evidence or proving, some of our translations say, that the Messiah, Christ, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and then said, this Jesus whom we are proclaiming to you is this Messiah, is this Christ. Now notice the four key words that are used here. The first word is that he reasoned with them for three Sabbaths, it says. It's a word that means to he would come into the Sabbath and he would systematically unfold the Old Testament teachings about the Messiah. Um, and, and the word also implies that it would be a, which would be customary, there would be a dialogue, there would be question and answers, and there would be a debate, and, and he would answer those questions. And he would teach and then there would be more dialogue and, and debating and wrestling, kind of a Socratic sort of way of doing things in this Greek city. Um, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, unfolding the truth about Jesus Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. He, he, what he was doing was doing a seminar on prophetic scriptures, Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ's first coming. The next two words are explaining and giving evidence or, or proving this. Um, these two words explain how Paul reasoned. So he reasoned, he unfolded the scriptures, and he explained them. The word literally means to, to open something up. He would unpack it. Here's the truth. Here's what the Old Testament says, and then he explained it. He unpacked those scriptures, proving, that's the other word, proving um, the truth of who Jesus was. So to get the picture, he would lay out the Old Testament passages about the Messiah, about the Christ. Specifically, I can imagine you went to Isaiah 53, the suffering of the Messiah, and, and so on and so forth. And then he connected the dots, and he said, now let me tell you who this is. This is Jesus, who just a few years ago, the Nazarene, who came upon the scene, and he connected the dots to prove that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. So he's reasoning them by explaining or opening up or unpacking the scriptures and giving evidence and proving that that was true. So that the bottom line was the next word, the fourth word is that he was simply proclaiming, proclaiming who Jesus Christ was, that Jesus fulfilled this, that he was the Messiah. Um, that, that was Paul's... Um, uh, method of what, what he did in, in, a, in a synagogue. Now, he had a lot of material to choose from because the Old Testament is replete with prophecies and, and the indications of the Messiah and the coming one and who it was. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, when he was talking with the Pharisees one day, he said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is 
the scriptures that testify of me. They point to me. After Jesus was resurrected, he was walking down a road to Emmaus, a little town of Emmaus, and he connected with two disciples. It was called the road to Emmaus. And it says in Luke chapter 24 that as he was walking down the road with his two disciples, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He did a an Old Testament presentation of the prophecies related to himself. The Old Testament is full of those Old Testament prophecies pointing to who Jesus was. Now that's what Paul did. He went to the synagogue and he dialogued, he debated them, he opened up the Bible, he unpacked it, he proved, and he connected the dots. Here's what the Old Testament said. This is how Jesus fulfilled it. Now, what was the response? Again, verse 4, it says, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. But it was a rather tepid response. Some of the Jews, it says, and I think the implication there is a few of the Jews responded. In contrast, it said a great many of the God-fearing Greeks and leading women responded. Had a great response from the Gentiles. A rather tepid response from the Jews. Some of them responded. Well, now we've got the beginnings here of a church in Thessalonica, and that's when the problems begin. So we keep reading again, uh, chapter 17, verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. How ironic. Jealousy. It can be so destructive. And so as Paul and Silas and Timothy are there and, and, and some of the Jews are accepting this truth and, and Gentiles are turning to faith in Jesus, there were plenty of other Jews who looked at that whole thing and says that they were jealous. And it says that they um, took along some wicked men from the marketplace. What strange bedfellows. These religious squeaky clean Jews who are willing to go out, and, and literally it is, they grab some street thugs, some people, some, some common ordinary street thugs from the marketplace, and they got a mob going. And they took the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they didn't find them, they, they drug Jason out, and so on and so forth, and the brethren, and, and uh, that whole mess began. Um, now, notice what the charges are against these guys, against Paul and Silas. It says, these men, verse 6, these men have upset the world and they've come to our city too. These guys, have, they're upsetting our town. Disorderly conduct is the charge. They are upsetting our town. Well, how ironic and hypocritical. They're the ones that grabbed the mob, the street thugs, probably paid them off, and... Uh, and set the town in an uproar. But truth doesn't matter when it comes to mob rule or jealousy. But the most serious charge is what they said in verse 7. Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, and they're saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now that was a charge of sedition. That was the deal breaker right there. And the, these magistrates, these five or six magistrates, it's one thing to stir up the city 
But this accusation of sedition, contrary to the decrees of Caesar, and I was doing a little research on that, and back in 16, AD 16, Tiberius Caesar, and I don't, I don't know exactly all the background, but Tiberius Caesar, who was a Caesar of the Roman Empire, must have had some people saying some things about him, uh, predicting his demise, uh, or saying that we need to get rid of him, or, or, or anyway, foretelling or predicting the demise of Tiberius Caesar. So you know what he did? He made it illegal to say anything negative or to predict the demise of a Caesar. He made a decree, put a law out there that you can't do that. So that's what these guys are referring to. Now, these magistrates of this city, wanted to, to, to wanting to stay in good stead with Rome, <clears throat> uh, certainly didn't want an uproar going on in their city, but they certainly didn't want people to say, um, there's another king that's coming, which is exactly what Paul was doing. If you're going to talk about the Messiah from the Old Testament, you're going to talk about the coming king. That's what Jesus did when he... Uh, spoke to his disciples after he was resurrected. That, that's what Palm Sunday was about. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And so Paul is there, and he's connecting the dots of Old Testament prophecy of a coming king. Jesus is going to return, establish his kingdom on earth. He didn't back away from that. But that, these, these jealous Jews who grabbed this, these street thugs and made this mob, they were taking Paul's words and turning it against Paul. He is, is talking about seditious activity of another king, Jesus. By the way, wasn't that what the Jews did to Jesus? Pilate said, you know, are, are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say. And he put on his cross, king of the Jews. Um, and the result of it all, again, verse 8 and 9, Paul and Silas were run out of town, and uh, the Christians were... Um, threatened, and Jason had to put up a bond and, and, all, and all that mess. And uh, so Paul and Silas head out of town, and, and Timothy, and they go 45 miles away, uh, put a little separation between them and Thessalonica, and they end up in Berea. And boy, what a different experience it was in Berea. The tale of two cities. Thessalonica didn't go well. Berea, well, let's read. Keep reading in verse 10. It says this, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Okay, that was typical custom. Did the same thing. Reason, did all of that, I'm sure. But verse 11 says, Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And verse 12 says, So therefore many of them believed, and along with the number of prominent Greek women, and men. What a different perspective 45 miles made from Thessalonica to Berea. It says there in verse 11 that the Bereans were more noble-minded. They were, they were people of noble character. And the New King James says they were fair-minded. They didn't jump to conclusions. They didn't rush to conclusions. They were open-minded. They were, they were noble, people of noble character. And Luke goes on, and he says, how, how was that manifested? It says, well, they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. 
They received the word with eagerness. They, the word means they welcomed it. They didn't, they didn't question it. They didn't shove it away. They, they wel- we want to hear this. They welcomed it with eagerness, but it also says they just didn't take it at face value. It says they examined or they searched the scriptures to see, is this really true? And that word is a judicial word. It was a, a word used um, in, in a judicial setting, in a, in, in a court setting of lawyers who would gather the evidence, weigh the evidence, a judge weighing the evidence, looking at all the pieces of the evidence, and coming to conclusions. It was a very thoughtful, reasoned response. But they welcomed it. They, were, they eagerly received it. What, what, do you, what, what do you have to say, Paul? This is fascinating. Now, let's go back to Isaiah. You said this, Paul. Uh, what about that verse in Genesis in the law where it says that uh, the he will come from the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent? Now, tell us about that. And they would search the scriptures and they examined it and all the evidence because they were noble-minded. They received it as opposed to Thessalonica where they rejected it, the majority of the Jews. Um, They eagerly poured over what Paul had presented. And again, the result, verse 12, therefore many of them believed. In contrast to the Jews in Thessalonica, where it says a few of them, some of them did. Here, many of the Jews believed, along with a number of the prominent Greek men and women. The people, interesting too, these were people of, these Greek men and women were people of society. They were the the, the socialites, they were probably the wealthy elite uh, in Thessalonica, and they accepted it. Um, that was the response in Berea, a big difference. So coming from Thessalonica, where they were abused and beat up almost again, thinking of, oh, here we go, we're going to repeat Philippi again. Um, Berea was a breath of fresh air as the people received it. However, you keep reading in verse 13, it says, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also. They came there, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so verse 14, immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. And then those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Um... Satan is all about harassing the work of God. Wherever the good news of Jesus is being shared, you can imagine there's going to be, you can understand, there's going to be the powers of darkness at work. Tale of two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. So what are some applications for us? Let me just share briefly a few of these this morning. First of all, when it comes to the message we need to do what Paul does. When, we, when it comes to the message of proclaiming to, a, to a, an unsaved world, we need to do what Paul did, and we need to make the central message the person and work of Jesus Christ. We make the central message the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul did. You know, conversations with unbelievers can easily um, get off into tangents. Uh, people always want to know, uh, well, what about the suffering of the world today? How can there be a good God? You know, the suffering of the world. Or, 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 or 
evolutionary theories, issues of, you know, the science in the Bible. Well, what about this or what about that? Um, 20 years ago when I was going through my bout of cancer and my surgeon, my doctor was uh, um, not a saved man, but he was a very bright guy and, and uh, we developed this great relationship. He ended up uh, moving to uh, and, and practicing up in Hershey in the uh, Penn State University up there, hospital. So I'd follow him in my, all my follow-ups for 10 years. And uh, he would do his examinations, and then we'd go out for lunch. It's kind of a strange and wonderful relationship, right? And um, uh, he would always, um, he, he was intrigued with this whole thing. But he was a man of science. He was a man of science. And quite frankly, I, I couldn't reason things about science and all those types of things. I wasn't a science teacher or anything like that. But you always just make the point, well, that's all interesting, it's all, but what, what do you do about Jesus? And we put the focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because we can always slip off in all the different topics of today. And you can all get caught into the vortex of argument and discussion. And folks, I'm just, just, just a bit of advice from the Apostle Paul. Focus on Jesus. Who was Jesus? Those are great questions. They're worthy to be asked and discussed, but not now. Most important thing is where you go to spend eternity, and that all comes down to what do you do with Jesus? Who do you say, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? What are his claims? Um, because if Jesus was not who he claimed to be, then, you know, what does it matter of all these other things? Now, I like what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3. He said, but even if we should suffer for the sake of righteousness... You are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but set apart, sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope, which is Jesus, the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. Give an account for that which is your hope, and our hope is a person. It's, it's who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us. That's where we need to make, um, uh, put the emphasis on. Um, you know, if, if you're here today and you have questions about, maybe you're just still sinking in this, this spiritual journey that you're on, and there are a lot of tough questions out there. What, what about the suffering in the world? What about, is there a good God? Why, if, it, if there is, then why do people suffer? And, and there's all these questions. But the most important question to ask and have answered is, but what do you do with Jesus? Who is he? And you go on a search, and you can find in the scriptures, and you can re research it and realize there was, a, there was a man named Jesus. There's no question about that in the story. And I love to go back to what C.S. Lewis would say. You know, he, you look at the claims of Christ, and you look at the followers of Jesus, and you've got to conclude either he, he was either a madman, he was a lunatic, to claim that he was God or, or he was a just out-and-out -out liar. He knew he wasn't, but he wanted a following. It was a heady thing, and he, he just would say lies to gather a, a, a gathering of people. He either was a nutcase or he was a liar, or as C.S. Lewis said, or he really was who he claimed to be. And he offers a free gift of eternal life if you simply believe in him. And if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ and Christ alone, 
your only hope, your only hope of eternal life and life beyond is in him. And I would invite you to put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. And all these questions, even questions about who he is and all the ramifications of that can be settled later. But he died and paid for your sins. He rose again. That is historical fact. And he is the only one who can give you eternal life if you believe him. That was the message of Paul. Now, the second thing I want to say is don't compromise that message. Don't compromise the truth about Christ out of fear that it might offend uh, you follow Paul's example here, and um, it could lead to trouble because he talked about King Jesus. Now, Paul knew he was an astute man. He was a well-educated man, and he fully understood that there were decrees that had been issued in AD 16 about predicting the demise of a Caesar and the coming of another king, and it didn't stop him goes back to that passage where Peter said, do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you for the hope that you had within you. And that's what Paul did. We, we, if, unless your head is in the sand these days, we are living in a society that is increasingly antagonistic, hateful to the message of Christ, to Christians. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher, over 50 years ago, in 1968, in one of his books, talked about that we are living back then, in the 60s, in a post-Christian world. Well, if that was true in 1968, it's certainly true today, and, um, and more so. The world is increasingly, our society, our American society is increasingly getting angry and upset and hateful to Christians. Um, if you don't believe me, I did this this week. If you don't believe me, just Google the phrase anti-Christian sentiment and see all the stuff that's written about it. Anti-Christian sentiment. In 2014, a couple of guys in Britain, I think, published a book entitled So Many Christians, So Few Lions. <laughs> uh, interesting title, right? So Many Christians, So Few Lions. And the point of the book, apparently, was that they did a study of the, the anti-Christian sentiment that was growing in America. Um, that was 2014, ten, ten, coming up 10 years ago. If that was true then, if they could write a whole book about anti-Christian sentiment in America 10 years ago, you could write a whole library full of books today. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, No Reason to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture, reminds us this. He said, secularism is never neutral. As it gains momentum, it will attempt to silence the voices of those who speak against it. We had better rediscover lessons the church learned throughout the 2,000 years of its history, that a suffering church is almost always a powerful church. But a compromising church is like salt that has lost its savor. If we have no conflict with the world, we're probably not true to the gospel. As has been said, we do not suffer for what we profess. We suffer for what we believe. If we take a stand for Jesus Christ, 
We talk about that he is the only way, the only offer of eternal life. Um, the God of this world, in whom the whole world lies at his grip, the evil one, who is gaining incredible momentum as secularism and all that anti-Christian sentiment is coming. Um, he doesn't like it, and he will turn, and he's fighting it. Jesus said, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. It's just part and parcel of this fallen world that is held in the grip of the evil one. Paul said in Timothy, he said, all those who desire to live godly are going to suffer. Um, and so if we attempt to avoid that and, and not ruffle feathers and, and, and be careful what we say so we don't offend people, um, we're, we're going to compromise the message. Paul did not do that. He stood up and he communicated Jesus Christ and he did it powerfully even though it knew he was going to get run out of town or worse, get thrown in a prison or worse, lose his head, which he eventually did. Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. We've been, we've been spared here in the United States of America for a long time, but it's, it's, it's coming and it's coming fast. Three years ago, Rod Dreher met, uh, wrote a book entitled Live Not By Lies. Fascinating book. I referred to it a few years ago. He offers this warning. He said, relatively few contemporary Christians are prepared to suffer for the faith. Why? Because the therapeutic society that has formed them denies the purpose of suffering in the first place. And the idea of bearing pain for the sake of truth seems ridiculous. That's a pretty condemning thought. Relatively few contemporary Christians are prepared to suffer for the faith. Because the therapeutic society, what does he mean by therapeutic society? Very simply this, your happiness is what matters. Take care of you. What, 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 it's your comfort. It's what's best for you. It's time for you to love you, love self. You can't, you can't love other people if you don't love you. So take care of you. It's your happiness is at a stake. The therapeutic society. And because of that, the purpose of suffering is questioned. It's even viewed as ridiculous. Why would I suffer if, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the first place in life? No, folks, we need to be well-grounded well in our hope of Jesus Christ, and we need to be bold in our witness of him. Not get off on the tangents, but lovingly with boldness, talk with people and say, you know, those are all very interesting things, LBGTQ issues and all those things. We can debate that for years, but let me tell you this. I may ask you this. But what do you think about Jesus Christ? Who, who do you think he was? And you engage people in a dialogue about that. And then one more quote from Lutzer in his book. He said, let's stop our whining and cowering. As the early church did, let us remember that Jesus is not dead. And though we don't see him with our eyes, and we don't have to to believe in him, that he's with us, even until the end of the age, 
We can be canceled by men, but through faith in Christ, we have the assurance that we will never be canceled by God. In this world, there's going to be tribulation. And folks, as believers, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and a follower of Jesus Christ, if our goal is not to offend people, if our goal is not to be, is not to be offensive or, 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 or protective, we, we want to be liked, we want to, the message is going to get compromised about Jesus. And um, I see someone shaking their head who's in the public school system, and boy, do you know what I'm talking about and in the world. Well, let me give you a third and final application. And that is that when it comes to hearing God's truth, let's be like the noble Bereans and receive it with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. See, if we're not being like the noble Bereans, when the onslaught of the world is attacking us, I mean, we're, we're not going to have any solid footing. Noble Bereans, they received the word with eagerness. They examined the scriptures daily to see. They, they loved it. They welcomed that. They were people of the book. They loved Bible study. It wasn't just an hour or 30-minute message once a week. They loved it. They got into it. They examined the scriptures. I jotted down some things from Psalm 119, that big psalm in, in the Psalter uh, about the word of God. Let me just real quickly read some of these things. Psalm 119, verse 14, the psalmist says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as all riches. Or verse 16, I delight in your statutes. Or verse 20, my soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all time. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. Verse 35, I delight in your commandments. Verse 40, I long for your precepts. Verse 47, I delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 48, I meditate on your statutes. Verse 70, I delight in your law. Verse 72, your law is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold or silver. Verse 77, your law is my delight. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. There's a guy who loved the word of God. Someone says the Bible is as necessary to our spiritual life as oxygen is to our physical life. And, and folks, there, there, the Bereans had it. There was an eagerness. There was joy. There was this desire to do Bible study and examine it and, and understand truth. Um, someone said, a Bible that is wearing out belongs probably to someone who isn't. <laughs> and this is Father's Day weekend, Father's Day, and man, let me just start there. My guess is that Philippian jailer, when he came to Christ... And um, it was the beginning of an incredible journey of discovering about Jesus and about God and, and throwing away all his Roman gods and everything else. And my guess is, man, he led his family into truth. And men, that's what we need to do. Ephesians chapter, four, or chapter 6, verse 4 says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And it starts with us. It starts with us. Second Timothy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Handling accurately, rightly handling the word of truth. I know that's hard. And I raised four kids, and 
I can remember pulling my hair out, trying to figure out seven years of difference and grabbing, trying to figure out, and that was back in the dark ages before we had clever little digital things that we could put in front of them and talk to. I was trying to find uh, um, big graphic books, you know, uh, the old uh, um, flannel graph stuff and get the kids there and talk about that. And if they got tired of that, we got some cassette tapes that had Bible stories that were, you know, creative and imaginative. We'd sit around and do stuff. I mean, it was, it's not easy. It's not easy. But because it's hard doesn't mean we don't do it, men. Get into the Bible. Study the Word. Get excited about it. And only the Holy Spirit can do that, I think, and produce that in our life. So if it's not there in your heart, then pray. Ask God to give you that noble-mindedness, like the Bereans. Spend time in God's Word. Study it. We'll provide tremendous things here at Fellowship Bible Church. Tremendous things to study in God's Word. There's great resources out there. But if we're not standing in truth, folks, we're going to lose the battle, and we are in this world today. Guys, let it be that it starts with us to lead our families and lead the world with truth. I got a few of them. May it be true of us like it was of Jeremiah. How about this? Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. You know, the church in Thessalonica had a fairly good start, uh, but there was a lot of opposition. Uh, but, but Paul loved those people. Uh, Jason was one of them. We don't know others, the name Sopater was another one. But, but th those were real people. There was a real church 2,000 years ago in, um, in that city of Thessalonica that had such opposition. And I'm going to wrap up. I've got a little bit of time to do that. I want to read to you a letter that Paul wrote to those Thessalonica, Thessalonian believers. Just a little bit. He, he, he wrote this letter and he said, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered up in Philippi and had been mistreated there in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. In other words, you know, we didn't shut up. We didn't back down. We came down to you in Thessalonica, 100 miles away, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, and it was not to please men, but to please God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God's our witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But what did we do among you Thessalonians? Well, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mom tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives, because you folks had become so dear to us. 
And you'll recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God and your witnesses. And so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received that word of God, which you heard from us, and you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really was, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe, you, brethren, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Well, they're not pleasing to God. They're hostile to men. They're hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they won't be saved, with the result that they, these Jews, always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, fellow believers, having been taken away from you for a short time, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. But our hope, for who is our hope, our joy, our crown, our exaltation? Is it not you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? You are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind here in Athens alone, I did, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance, you're going to suffer. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that maybe the tempter may have tempted you and our labor over you might have been in vain. But Timothy has returned. He's come to us. And he's brought us good news of your faith and love, that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. And for this reason, brethren and sisters in Christ, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live as we stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy which we rejoice before our God on your account? as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we can see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. And so now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all the people, just as we also abound in our love for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. God bless you, he would write. God bless you. These are real people. This was a real group of people in Thessalonica and Berea. We're real people in a fallen world that desperately needs Jesus. So let's trust him. Not be intimidated or back away in fear. And let's be like the noble Bereans 
and eagerly study the scriptures. And let us be established in our faith. This day and age, the church is needed. That kind of a church is needed desperately. Let's pray. So Father, grant us grace to continue to serve you, to be strengthened with power in the inner man, that we can proclaim the glad tidings and the good news of Jesus. And may we love one another, Father, as your son Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by how we treat and love one another. A church, a body of believers come together, growing in our faith, growing in the great grace and knowledge of you. May we be men and women of the book, and may the men rise up and lead solidly, grounded in truth, May the women continue to grow and lead their families in this world like Lydia did. And may we really, truly turn the world upside down for the cause of Christ with gentleness, with love. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.